Good morning. Welcome again to our online service here at South Suburban Christian Church. Thank you for joining us. Um, for lots of you, you join us online at 9 o'clock, but some of you uh, were joining us at our 1030, and I'm grateful that you hung out for 30 minutes waiting because we've shifted our time to 11 o'clock, uh, so our services are 9, 30, and 11. Part of the reason that we've done this online is because uh, this will become a live streaming service uh, in September, and uh, at current right now, and one never knows as we try to manage uh, coming out of uh, uh, this pandemic and the, um, the protocols that need to happen and, and, and as we try to do life together. First of all, thank you for your flexibility and your patience. Uh, but we plan that uh, in September, our uh, live stream will be at the exact same time in the exact same thing that's happening here in our sanctuary, our worship center on our campus here on Broadway. Um, I pray that uh, you are um, um, praying and discerning uh, how God is leading you as you worship. We're grateful that you're here as we offer this online service, but we also want to uh, remind you that we are meeting in person at uh, 9 and 11 a.m., and if you are nearby, we'd love to have you come visit us in person. Uh, or if you are a member of our church, come on back as you feel safe as we begin to worship together. What a wonderful uh, opportunity it is to be with you here, but also what a wonderful opportunity it is to be gathered with the other saints, with the other people of God, uh, as we gather around this table to receive the Lord's Supper, to hear His teachings, to experience fellowship, and to offer our prayers and lift our hearts and song, so, um, which incidentally is very uh, Acts chapter 2, as uh, we are in the book of Acts again this morning. Uh, we're in the series, uh, Derailed, as we accompany the same lessons that our young people will be looking at during Vacation Bible School, uh, and uh, today we're looking at Acts chapter 27. Now, we're looking at the whole chapter today, uh, because it's a fairly long chapter, uh, what I'm going to do is be inviting you to look at verses as we go through the message, and I'll try to give you kind of a framework as we begin. Um, but I, want, I do want to read what I think is the key verse. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 27. Hope that you'll keep your Bibles open as we go through this chapter, this, this tremendous story of uh, how Jesus um, gives us hope. And we'll be looking at uh, how Paul uh, manages a storm in his life. Verse 23 is the key verse that I want to uh, pray that you keep in your memory and memorize and let it be one of your go-to verses uh, as uh, we'll understand more why Paul says this and why this story is so important for our lives. Acts chapter 27, verse 23. For this very night, Paul says... There stood before me an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. May God add his blessing and understanding to the reading of this, his holy and perfect word. Amen. Now, because this chapter is such a long chapter, uh, I only read uh, those uh, few verses to you. 
Um, our kids, when they go through Vacation Bible School, are going to be spending uh, their time on that second night looking at the entirety of this story. Uh, the entire story of the Apostle Paul, who we were introduced to last week <clears throat> as he is converted on the road toward going toward Damascus and Ananias uh, lays hands on him, he's healed of his blindness and then begins to speak boldly. Paul begins to speak boldly about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, this particular story in Acts 27 is about a, a storm and a shipwreck uh, that Paul lives through uh, in one of his final journeys, you might say, through his ministry. This isn't the first storm that Paul has dealt with. Since becoming a follower of Jesus, he has been doing ministry now for almost 30 years. And 30 years, uh, so, so last week we looked at his conversion this story in Acts 27 is, is 30 years later. Um, it's been one storm after another in Paul's life. One arrest, one beating, one threatening, one after another as uh, his message of God's love through Jesus Christ continues uh, to be proclaimed and his opponents continue to try to silence him. Well, what has happened just prior to Acts 27 Paul was in Jerusalem at the temple preaching, and a group of men started a riot around his preaching. And um, they began to accuse Paul of uh, not only false teaching or false doctrine, heresy, if you will, according to the Jewish faith, but also of defiling the temple. And there's a lot of background in that, and I encourage you, if you're interested, you can go back and read the couple chapters previous, and you can see uh, some of those charges and, and, and what Paul really said and how it was perceived. We all know that sometimes we say things meaning one thing, but everybody else hears it because of their own false motives uh, to be something else. But at this point, just prior to chapter 27, Paul, who's a Roman citizen, so he has certain rights that a lot of Jews don't have, he uh, sees that things aren't going his way with the local authorities, and so he pulls out the nuclear option that is available to every Roman citizen, and that is he can, quote, appeal to Caesar, which means he has the right to have his case heard by the emperor himself. And his request is granted. So he has to begin the journey uh, from Jerusalem and the city surrounding it uh, across the Mediterranean Sea uh, to uh, Rome. Now, this journey... Uh, shouldn't have taken that long, maybe a couple of months, but in Paul's case, it took somewhere between one to two years. And that's where we pick up the story here in Acts chapter 27. Paul has been arrested. He's under the authority of a centurion, which is a Roman soldier, whose job is to get him from uh, ancient Palestine, Jerusalem, Israel, to the city of Rome so that he can have his case heard by the emperor. In verse 9, Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts, uh, who is apparently with Paul during the journey because he uses that first-person plural, we, quite a bit, um, is somewhere between Jerusalem and Rome. They've been blown off course. They're not really sure where they are. Uh, and they land uh, in a port called Fair Haven, which most scholars think is what is present-day Crete, uh, one of the larger island nations there in the Mediterranean Sea. We know that it's been the Day of Atonement. It has just been observed because they talk about the fast 
having been observed, which the primary fast is that Day of Atonement, uh, which occurs in the fall. And all of that makes sense because sailors did not sail the Mediterranean Sea from fall until springs because the, the season of late fall, winter, is a very dangerous time to be sailing in the, in the boats that they had at that time on the Mediterranean Sea. So Paul's a, re- a prisoner, remember, but this camaraderie is developing between his soldiers and the other f- folks who are on the boat, the people that work the boat, the pilot or the captain. And Paul, uh, as they're already trying to figure out where they are, advises the crew that they need to stay at the Fairhaven port, probably Crete, and continue their voyage in the spring. Now, this wouldn't have been all that unusual, actually, to to spend uh, five, six, seven months on a particular journey in a particular place because of safety and weather and that sort of thing. Wouldn't have been odd. But the pilot of the ship, doesn't like the port he doesn't think it's good enough and so he says that he he tells the centurion i don't care what paul says i know we can make it let's let's go out into the mediterranean sea and see if we can't get to a better port or maybe if weather is good enough we can get all the way to rome so they departed and it isn't soon uh, long after that they depart that they find themselves in a storm now look at verse 20 with me Chapter 27, verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. You see, that's how they would have known where they were. They didn't have, they didn't have sea maps or, or the instruments that they needed to know where they are, so they used the, the, the stars and the sun to, to gauge not only where they were, but what direction they were going. So when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, that means a huge storm was battering them, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. It's a nice biblical way of saying they had given up. They knew that they were going to die. The first point that I want to share with with you today is that, you know, sometimes storms and life just go together. Sometimes storms and life just go together. So, storms. Let's think about that for a second. You know, there's a common sentiment that is probably widely circulated uh, is that every person on the planet is in one of three circumstances. This is, we preachers use this all the time because it's true, and you know it's true. And those three circumstances are people are either coming out of a storm, going into a storm, or they're already in the midst of a storm. Well, that's not really very encouraging, is it? We've all found ourselves in storms, haven't we? The news when the doctor says that our child has not survived. They did all that they could do. When the phone call comes early in the morning and the voice says, I'm sorry, your father has passed away. When your spouse says those words to you that cut your heart out. I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. Or when your adult child storms out of the house yelling over their shoulder, I hate you. Or when you might have sat with your own physician and your doctor had to say to you, I'm sorry, you have cancer. There's not much we can do. You only have a few months to live. Or your employer says, Hey, I'm really sorry. 
but we have to make some cuts and you're being laid off. Or even worse, you're fired. Lots of folks like to try to spiritualize storms. And I think there's some benefit in that, perhaps. But how they spiritualize it can be detrimental. Some folks say, well, God is just testing you. That doesn't always give us any uh, sense of relief or sense of hope, does it? God is just testing us. Why? Because we can pass tests or what? We can fail them as well. A common sentiment and one that always invites a follow-up question, why would God do this or why would God allow this to happen to me? Other folks blame the devil. The devil is at war with me or our family. The devil's at war at our church. And you know, the truth is, is that sometimes both of those things might be true. Not universally, but I do believe that the devil is at war with us, especially the people of God. And he wants to do everything in his power, and the powers of darkness want to do everything that they can to demoralize us, to hurt us. And not just because they like to see us in pain, but they know that one of the human inclinations when we find ourselves in storms is to rage against God, to lose hope, to give up, to not be willing to do anything for the sake of the kingdom. Well, I'm not fully convinced that God creates storms, but I do think God allows our own free will to play out. God allows us to enter certain storms. But there's another cause, another source for the storms that many of us go through in our life. And this is the part that's probably not going to be very popular. And that is, it could be the result of our own actions. Paul warned everyone before they left the port, we should stay here at this port and not go back out to sea. And the text even suggests that everyone voted. Look at verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, the majority decided to put to sea. Well, that sentence tells me two things. First, sometimes our storms are our own fault. They are a result of our own bad choices. You might even say our own moments of stupidity. As a pastor, I've experienced conversations with people who have smoked all their lives. And as they lay in that hospital bed, gasping for each breath, they say to me, how could God allow this to happen to me? I understand that that might not be the time for me to say, well, maybe the 50 years of smoking a pack a day might have contributed to your ultimate fate, but I'm thinking it, I don't ever say that. Sometimes we just don't pay attention to our spouses and we take him for granted or we don't show her any appreciation. And before anyone realizes it, before either spouse knows it, the relationship has grown so cold that so many feel that the only option is to end the relationship. Others try to find warmth in, uh, in an extramarital affair only to discover that fire can keep warm, but it can also burn us. It can turn things to ash, even a marriage. But here on this ship that Paul finds himself on, a majority thought that going out to sea 
and the worst season of all was a good idea. Which means that there was a number that agreed with Paul. You see, the majority were ready to go, but there must have been a minority that didn't want to go. But they went with the crew anyway. Which means sometimes the storms that we find ourselves in aren't our fault, but they are the fault of someone else with whom we are in relationship of some kind. A spouse's gambling debts impact the family's finances. They might lose their home, their cars, everything else so that they can be sold and pay off the debts. And the truth is that regardless of why storms come, at the end of the day, as we sit and we try to think about our own lives and our own circumstances, storms are always a part of life. I think ultimately the result of the brokenness of the entire human race is the reason for storms. You know, it's that quintessential question, why do bad things happen? The only reason you and I don't take our country to war is because we can't. <laughs> that is, is, we're not in the specific office or have the sufficient power and influence to rage our forces of our nation against another nation. But man, we sure can make war with our siblings. We can declare a war with our neighbors. We can declare war even in our church. And because of our propensity, because of the all too common trait of every human being, we want our way. We want what we want. And the Bible teaches us that that kind of worldview, that kind of mindset, is the kind of things that lead to sickness, to pain, and even death. And these are the result of the corrupted nature of a human being, of our human rebellion. When our parents, Adam and Eve, decided that they preferred themselves to be the gods of their life, when they rebelled and rejected God's overwhelming generosity of the entire garden, you can eat anything of the entire garden except this one tree, because they chose to be their own gods, the entire human race and all of creation plummeted into corruption into decay, into death. Jesus found himself in a similar kind of storm, if you'll remember. A storm not of his own making, by the way. A storm when the very people he came to save whipped up into a bloodthirsty frenzy by the rebellious religious leaders, rejected God incarnate, the same way God was rejected in the Garden of Eden, the same way God was rejected at Mount Sinai when His people made the golden calf, the same way God was rejected in the voice of the prophets. And now, once again, the human race was furious that God had come to them on His terms rather than on their terms. And they would make God pay for that decision. And him pay He did with his own life they would try to kill god and kill god they would do it was a storm we caused it was a storm that i caused that all of us have caused 
but it was a storm that Jesus accepted. It was a storm that Jesus walked through willingly. Not with us, but for us. And that's important. He walked through that storm all by Himself. Because we can't handle the storm. You see, the problem, our sickness, our rebellion, our anger, our sin was so grievous, only God could go through that storm by Himself so that we would be saved. And yet, look at verse 20. It is in these storms that all hope is lost. And it is also in that moment that God reveals His presence. The second point that I want to share with you is our hope isn't the absence of the storm, but it's the presence of Christ. You know, this wasn't the first storm that overtook a boat. If you remember back in the Old Testament, the story of Jonah, who tried to run from God in a boat, and that storm was only appeased when Jonah was on this boat. That storm was only appeased when Jonah said, y'all got to throw me overboard. And when they threw him overboard, the, the waters calmed, and a great giant fish swallowed up Jonah and took him and deposited him on the shore closest to the destination God intended for Jonah to go. Listen, when God says go somewhere, if you don't go willingly, sometimes God uses a storm to get you where you need to be. In Luke chapter 8, written by the same guy who wrote the book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke is really the first part of a book that probably should be called Luke-Acts because the physician Luke writes both of those books. Luke about the life of Jesus, Acts about the life of the early church. Luke records another ship in Luke chapter 8 that was caught in a storm. This time, the disciples are on that boat in that storm, and Jesus is literally physically with them. Except he's asleep in the boat. And the disciples cry out in fear. And with a lost hope, they go to Jesus and say, Why do you not care about us? How can you be sleeping? I mean, they had the Son of God, God the Son, in the boat with them. But their faith of their survival looked more, even in that moment, in the absence of the storm, rather than in the presence of the Master, the Messiah, in the boat with them. And they were able to see it, see Him with their own eyes. In Acts chapter 27, I'm sorry, chapter 27, verse 21, Paul stands up. Look there with me. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. I'm not really sure Paul intends to sound like a know-it-all jerk at this point, but I think he's simply trying to say, hey, you didn't listen to me before. I told you this would happen. It's happened. Now I'm telling you, listen to me, and we'll get through this. And that's exactly what they choose to do. But look at what Paul says about how to get through it. He goes on there, uh, beginning again in chapter 21. Men, you should have listened to me. Take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Okay, we're all going to live. The ship's going to crumble and die, but we're going to live. Do not be afraid. 
Do not be afraid, Paul. Paul's saying, he's quoting somebody else. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So, and then Paul says, after he's finished that quote, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Now, now, now let me just pause here for a little parenthetical point, if you will. Look what Paul was told. You must stand before Caesar. Sometimes the storms that you're going through are really to prepare you for a greater storm that's ahead. To get you ready for a storm that's about to come. The storm Paul found himself in was not the storm that God was preparing Paul for. It was the storm when he would stand before Caesar. Now, lots of Bible scholars argue about what happened with Paul because we don't have this in Scripture. Some say that Paul uh, went, appealed before Caesar. Caesar freed him. Paul went to uh, uh, Spain where he wrote First and Second Timothy in the book of Titus and then returned to Rome where he was subsequently arrested and then martyred, put to death for his faith. Other scholars say, no, he went to Caesar, and Caesar executed him right there. Well, whatever happened, and however it happened, the end result, depending on your uh, perspective and, and who you want to believe, the result was the same. After Paul meets Caesar is when Paul ultimately is put to death. Haruki Murakama is a Japanese author, very well known throughout the world. Um, an interesting man if you want to do some research on him. He's really famous for a particular quote about storms. Let me read his quote to you. And once the storm is over, you won't remember how you made it through, how you managed to survive. You won't even be sure whether the storm is really over. But one thing is certain. When you come out of the storm, you won't be the same person who walked in. And that's what storms are all about. Hmm. Well, I don't completely disagree with this sentiment, but I think I would have just a little different take on it, on why his quote is true. Different, I think, from how most folks would see the effects of a storm. Most of us would nod our heads and we'd say something along the lines of, yeah, when we go through storms, we get stronger. We're different. Maybe. I, I think partially that might be true. That certainly isn't true for everyone, though, is it? I mean, for a lot of folks, when they go through storms, it's the breaking point. It's the point where they find themselves so beaten and battered beyond repair that they truly do give up all hope. That they're not stronger on the other side of the storm. They're actually weaker. But if we start looking at the storms as not something to be avoided, not something that should strengthen us, but to look at storms as an opportunity to see who is with us in the midst of the storm. That will make all the difference. God is with us. Which incidentally is one of the names of Jesus. Emmanuel. The beginning of the Gospel of John, we are told that God is with us. And here's the key for me. It doesn't matter why you're in the storm. 
doesn't matter who caused the storm. It could be God's doing. It could be the devil's doing. It could be your fault. It could be the fault of the person sitting next to you. It could be my fault that you're going through a storm right now. But it doesn't matter. What matters is regardless of who caused the storm, God is with us. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. He's working to carry us through the storms of our life, regardless of the reason. And even though our grandmothers may have said, well, you're the one that caused it, so you're the one that's going to have to suffer. (laughs) In the gospel, that's not true. Especially in the storms that we have caused ourselves, that are our own fault. God is with us. God is redeeming us. God is bringing, bringing us out of that storm. Look at verse 24. The very reason God has granted us a pass, we can see exemplified beautifully in verse 24. The angel says, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Granted you all those who sail with you. What the angel is saying to Paul, because God's going to save you, Paul, Because of God's mercy, He's also going to save everybody who's with you, regardless of whether or not they deserve it. That granted, that word granted, to be given something we don't deserve, that we didn't earn, is the very definition of grace. You remember? You're going to hear this from me over and over and over again until you're sick of it. Grace is when we're given something we don't deserve. Mercy is when we're not given what we do deserve. And now, watch what happens in this account of God's amazing work. Look at verse 34. Therefore, I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Now some of you know where I'm going with this. Are you going through a storm today? Well, you either are, you just got through one, or you're getting ready to start one. You need to take some food. Because it is the bread of heaven, the cup of salvation. It is from those that encouragement comes. Point three. When you receive Christ's food, encouragement comes. Now, why is this so? Because it is at the table of the Lord that we're going to go to in just a few moments that we are reminded of three very important things that Acts chapter 27 is trying to teach us. First, God's grace. He is giving us what we do not deserve. Forgiveness, love, relationship, community, eternal life. Second, He's giving us mercy. That is, He's not giving us what we do deserve. Punishment. To be cast out. Eternal death. And third, 
He is with us. At no more powerful moment is Christ with us than in the celebration of His sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and in the preaching of His Word. We in the Christian church have a real nuanced understanding of what happens at the table. We would declare that Christ is present when we gather at the table. Now, we don't necessarily declare statements about what happens to the bread or what happens to, to the cup or, or what happens in the midst of the govern, gathering, but we do declare that as we are gathered, the mystical body of Christ is present. Now, let me conclude with this. One of our founders, Alexander Campbell, reminds us that whenever God's people gather in the house of God, there ought to always be a table. And where there's a table, there ought to be a loaf of bread. And where there's a loaf of bread, there is the opportunity to break that loaf, which is nothing more than the New Testament model, the New Testament wording for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We believe the Lord's Supper conveys Christ's presence, reminds us that God is with us. Matter of fact, Campbell said that when you receive the Lord's Supper, Christ is saying to you, for you my body was wounded. For you my life was taken. And receiving the believer says back to Christ, Lord, I believe it. My life sprung from Your suffering. My joy from Your sorrow. My hope of glory everlasting from Your humiliation and abasement even to death. Campbell then says that when we serve one another the Lord's Supper, when we serve one another that broken bread that Paul blessed and broke and gave to that crew, what we're saying to one another is you, my brother, my sister, once an alien, are now a citizen of heaven. Once a stranger, are now brought home to the family of God. You have owned my Lord as your Lord, my people as your people. Under Jesus the Messiah, we are one. Mutually embraced in the everlasting arms, I embrace you in mine. Your sorrow shall be my sorrows, your joy shall be my joy. We are joint debtors to the favor of God and the love of Jesus. We shall jointly suffer with Jesus that we may jointly reign with Jesus. Let us then renew our strength, remember our King, and hold fast our boasted hope, unshaken to the end. And that's a lot for people to say as they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, but folks would have done things differently back then, wouldn't they? If... I like it, though. I like those reminders. I might have added one more sentence, though. I might have said, and regardless of the ferocity of the storm, <laughs> Christ is with us. Amen.